Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Horning and welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Today we have Stan Stefansik and I am grateful that he is here. Stan has a master's in divinity from Harvard Divinity School and has been involved deeply in the civil rights movement, was an activist minister was on the national board of Common Cause, where he passed key legislation, civil rights legislation. He was the first president of the first chapter of the ACLU in Alabama, and has been also twice involved in the Hoffman process as a faculty member, an advisor, a researcher, so much good stuff and so grateful to be having this conversation with you. Stan, thank you. What else would you add to that introduction? It's been a long and interesting path, and I certainly have never had problems with being bored. There was always a lot to do, more than I could do. The process certainly was a was a key experience in my life in terms of shaping my future after I did the process in July of 1985, which was then the first residential seven and a half day process of the Hoffman Institute. The first residential process. We used to be once a week for, was it 13 weeks? And then you took the first uh, process that was um, all together. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And even though it was in very rough form at the time, because it was in the process of developing, and and over the years we developed it, and people are continuing to develop it and improve it and find ways to make it more effective and more powerful. But it certainly was a very powerful experience for me. And what it did for me was help me find my grounding, my center, uh, what we call the spiritual self. My first experience of the spiritual self was was really visceral. It was very powerful to have an experience of an aspect of yourself that was unconditioned and basically had the affect of uh, love and joy. And that grounding, of course, it takes time to get rid of all of the bad habits that we develop and all the conditioning, and you have to use the tools of the process in order to do that. But once you find that center and that ground, it's like building a foundation, strong foundation for anything. You, I started out as a builder, as a construction worker, a bricklayer and stonemason, and know that you have to have a firm foundation in order to building to stand. And it's the same with people. And your dad was a, a carpenter? He was the carpenter and I'd worked with him as a child and had my first construction accident when I was five years old. And almost chopped off one of my fingers on a construction job. And we were, you know, blue collar, 
my father worked uh, almost seven days a week and I worked with him on weekends and in the summers I went to work with him. And so anyway, uh, in doing the process, I resolved a lot of issues I had with my parents who divorced when I was 16. And I tell people, one of the, one of the interesting things that happened is that I did the process in July of 85 and in August of 85, my son went to high school orientation. And when he came back, uh, he had his schedule and we went over the schedule. He had the usual courses in English and history and science and so on. And he had a check mark next to rifle team. And I said, Benjamin, what is it? He said, oh, they have a rifle team. They have ROTC at the high school. And I said, Benjamin, you know what I feel about guns. I've been anti-gun all the time, and I've been working for changing the laws and so on. And Well, we had a long discussion, and he said, look, it's just shooting at targets. We don't, I'm not going hunting, not, not shooting people. You know, it's just shooting at targets. Now, I know that if I had had that experience with him without having done the process, there is no way he would ever have gotten my permission to be on the rifle team. I would have been self-righteous. I would have given him a sermon and told him how bad that was, blah, blah, blah. And we would have gone to war. I know that. He would have rebelled. Something shifted there. Yeah. And so we talked about it. And so I said, his mother was against it. And I was, I said, okay, go ahead and do it. As a result, he, he won all kinds of trophies and it was a very powerful experience for him. And he did well. And we didn't have any battles about school and, uh, he still practices, uh, and he loves guns, but he's never gone hunting and he, you know, but anyway, I got rid of my self-righteousness that was linked to my anger and my sense of justice. I'm imagining that that injustice that you felt maybe from your parents, your dad you talked about, that, that, that got channeled in other ways for justice. Yeah, because I finally came to the realization that justice is love distributed. Mm, wait, say that again. Justice is love distributed. I was telling someone recently, two great men died on the same day, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. C.T. Vivian was an old friend of mine. C.T. Vivian had worked with Dr. King right from the beginning, and he was one of the major theorists in terms of the civil rights movement. And I never did meet John Lewis, but of course I knew of him. And what was interesting to me about C.T. Vivian and John Lewis is that they were both ministers, both Baptist Christian ministers. You would not have known that listening to them because they were able to have their faith be their foundation and their center as they went ahead and tried to make America into a better place and to realize the fundamental ideals and principles of the United States. And so they talked about equality. They talked about justice. Dr. King was like that too, although he, he was more of a talk more of theology. 
but they were grounded. You met Dr. King, didn't you? Yes. When I was in Texas, I was uh, a student at uh, SMU, and we were doing demonstrations in Huntsville, Texas, which was about 90 miles south of Dallas. A group of high school, black high school students formed an SCLC, that is Southern Christian Leadership Conference Youth Organization, and they bought sweatshirts and they painted on the front of the sweatshirt a white and a black hand clasped. They wore them to school. They were expelled from school. The next day, they were arrested and sent to juvenile detention homes. Well, let me get this straight. Just for wearing those shirts with a white and a black hand clasped together? That's it. Because that meant integration, right? So we went down there to demonstrate, to raise the issue, to get them out of jail and to get lawyers to defend them. And so we would go down on weekends and demonstrate in Huntsville. As a result of that, two or three months later, Dr. King was invited to SMU to to address the student body. And before addressing the student body, he wanted to meet with us, those of us who were involved in Huntsville. And so we had a two and a half hour meeting with him to talk about Huntsville and about our strategies and what we were doing there. And in that meeting, he, he came up to each one of us shook our hands and thanked us for participating in helping these kids get free. And I thought, wow, I thought, I said, Dr. King, we're the ones who should be thanking you for motivating us and helping us understand how important it is for us to work to establish justice and racial equality and so on. So yeah, it was, it was a, a great thrill to meet him. You talk about the spiritual self and your connection to your spirit. And tell me about how that works around your commitment to justice. Is there alignment there of connection to your own spirit and the commitment to creating a better world? Yes, because you're inner directed rather than other directed or outside directed you're not you're not being directed by rewards you're not being directed by what people are going to the good things people are going to say about you you're, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do and that and that in and of itself is enough motivation so you have to know who you are and what you're doing in order to make sure that your behavior is consistent with your values. Mm. And when you talk about that inner directed versus outer directed, I imagine that in the deep South during that time, there were a lot of people that were not giving you that positive, keep it up. There was a lot of opposition to the work you were doing. Sure. You could be killed. Uh, because when we were in Huntsville on Friday afternoon, there's Sam Houston State University is in Huntsville, and the students would come out and drive their cars around the square where we were demonst- where we were marching, and in their cars and pickup trucks with their rifles slung in the back, and call- having rebel flags flying out of their uh, vehicles and screaming at us and so on. And you think any minute now somebody's going to take a shot at us. You never knew. 
what was going to happen. I had friends who were murdered in civil rights demonstrations. Hopefully, we're at a we're at a watershed now with Black Lives Matter because basically what we're doing is trying to manifest the equality that we say we believe in as Americans. Hmm, to make that come true. Yeah, it's a quest for equality and justice. We're going through a big shakeup now because we've got these negative cultural values. You talk about negative love, got a lot of negative love floating around and especially tied to race. It's, it's always out there. You got to deal with it. Yeah. So I imagine as a Unitarian Universalist minister leading a congregation, you have done that in so many places in Birmingham and Bellevue, Washington and San Francisco and Boulder and Tucson. What was that like to lead those communities uh, on, on the path towards justice and healing? Fortunately, I had congregations basically that were in support of what I was doing, what we were doing, and they responded to my leadership. And we had some victories, which is always nice, especially in Alabama. We've passed some significant legislation. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? The legislation we passed was to get rid of conflicts of interest so that members of the legislature in terms of where they were getting their money to run for office would not be in conflict in terms of a legalized bribery system, which is what we have now in the United States because of what the Supreme Court ruled in terms that money is free speech. We established ethical norms that members of the legislature and state government had to abide by and and, uh, developed an ethics commission that People had to disclose where they were getting their money to run for office. That was a big deal at that time. And George Wallace was then the governor, and he was running for president. And the the legislature, the House and the Senate, loved the bill to death. They added all kinds of things into it to make it stronger and stronger and stronger, thinking that Wallace was going to veto it. Well, he was running for president. He couldn't veto ethics legislation. So he not only signed it, but he used revenue sharing funds to finance the ethics commission that was developed. So then the legislature was stuck. (laughs) And that, that bill has been in force ever since. Common Cause did a lot of legislation like this and pushed legislation at the state level. And those of us who were activists with Common Cause I was a citizen lobbyist, and I would go to Montgomery, and I would lobby for various changes in uh, legislation and so on. And I would go down to Montgomery, and I'd go up in the Senate chamber, the, the, the viewing part, and some old senator would see me up there and knew I was from Common Cause, and he'd look up there and he'd ask for a point of personal privilege uh, in order to get the floor. And then he'd look up and say, I want to know, he'd point at me and say, I want to know where Common Cause gets their money. And I'd say, Senator, you tell me where you get yours and I'll tell you where I get mine. <laughs> oh, so there you are engaging in the live session of the house. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they're attacking me while I'm sitting up in the gallery. Uh, 
because they knew they were under the gun. Yeah. And and you mentioned that you checked recently and, and some of that legislation that you worked to pass. There's still a state ethics commission in Alabama, believe it or not. <laughs> Fantastic. And as you continued that work, you eventually found your way uh, back to the uh, Hoffman Institute and Work working alongside with Raz and Grassi and Liza, yeah. Well, I I had known Raz and Raz and I had had worked with with, with some people on some issues when I was still with the institute. Then I left the institute and uh, went back to being a parish minister. As I say, I was working with churches whose that were in crisis, the ministers of which uh, had had sexual relations with members and caused all kinds of grief and problems in the churches and so on wait so you would you would sorry to interrupt you would come in after those or in the midst of those crisis points to rebuild trust with the congregation yeah and to do a crisis intervention and now this was the place where i really had to be grounded because as a male minister, I was getting all kinds of projections and transference by a whole range of people. When this happens in a church, about 10% of the people love the minister and think that he can do no wrong. And another 10 on the other side want to see him go to prison. And then you got everybody else in between who are being trying to be pulled to one side or another. And basically, I was there to talk about reality, about what happened and how we're going to deal with this and, and get people to start sharing instead of triangulating, instead of going into groups, having open hearings, having more openness, using certain techniques in terms of the sermons to talk about the values that we say we share. And, but you got to stay grounded because you're constantly being questioned or attacked, criticized, you have to really know what you're doing. There's a rule of thumb that ministers who follow ministers who've been fired or let go because of these issues, they last less than three years. There's so much transfer and so much projection that they, they get ground down. Well, if you understand transference and projection as you learn in the process, then you know what's coming at you, and you know it's not about you, and you can deal with it. But if you take it personally, you're finished. And and just to identify transference as the uh, projection of uh, someone's own experience and their own relationship with their parents, and then uh, transferring it onto you as an authority figure, that must have happened a lot. Yeah, or transfer from that other minister onto you. I see. That's a lot of work to mend the fabric that had been torn in the community. What helped you stay? You mentioned about staying grounded, and I imagine you're talking about your spirit, your essence. How how did you nav navigate those turbulent waters staying grounded to who you are and what you believe and what you value? Um, have friends to talk to. I had, had a really very psychodynamically wise wife to talk to. Had a 
very good relationship with her that helps. You have to have some joy and happiness too, you know. How great to have a wife who understands the dynamics and the psychology of that. Yeah. If I talked to her about something and I didn't quite get it, she'd see another insight and help me and uh, help me figure it out. Plus, I was doing a lot of workshops with her too, working with some really profound psychologists and uh, psychiatrists. Uh, James Masterson, who was an expert on narcissism and uh, borderline personality disorders. Did that lead you into the neuropsychology that you um, started to study? Well, first reading Dan Siegel's books when they first started coming out, because my wife was studying with him and studying his work. And in terms of the brain, I I was fascinated by neuropsychology and that if I had started all over again, that's the field I would have gone into. Really? Why... What, what is it about it that you're passionate about? How the brain functions. How do we learn? How do we, who are we? What are we? How do we change? How do we navigate life? Um, how do we help people become, realize their potential rather than short-circuiting their potential and becoming pathological? The brain is a wondrous, wondrous thing. I did a lot of study, and we did a lot of study and try to understand uh, how the process worked on the brain. And you ended up working um, alongside Raz and Liza and brought some of that research into the work we do in the process. Yeah, and of course, and Raz was certainly committed to it because he had a long history in terms of uh, organizations that were bringing about change and helping people understand what it meant to be human. And so he had a lot of interest. Also, we, we, we had a lot of curiosity to understand how and why the process worked. We knew what, we were, what was happening, but we didn't know interpsychically what was going on in, at, at the beginning. I see. So, so it wasn't about adding anything to the process based on your research, but understanding why it worked so well and what was happening. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. And and that led you to understand that in fact neurons were actually changing as a result of this work. The brain was changing, yeah, that we have generativity. Because for a long time people used to believe that when you hit 40 your brain starts to die and you start to go downhill. And then what we learned from neuropsychology is that the brain continues to grow if you if you attend to it. Yeah, I think I think that's really important for people to understand who maybe didn't get that previously, who maybe say, well, of course, new neurons can be formed, but we have to understand it in the context of the history that people really thought the brain was fixed. It didn't grow. It didn't change. Exactly. Or that people couldn't change. Wow. Was that a, that you think that was also a a common belief? I think so. With a lot of people. I think it's still a belief. A lot of people still don't, don't grow for whatever reason. They stay stuck in their ideologies. They stay stuck with their beliefs. I am who I am. This is the way it is. And, and 
I is who I is. <laughs> Change, it sounds like, is a has been a passion of why people do and also why people don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen myself as a change agent, yeah. And as you look on the spectrum of your work as a change agent, what do you notice? What's it like to reflect on that? Well, I, it turns out that I'm, I'm in the process of writing my memoirs, so I'm reviewing my life. I had a, I had a basic belief that good ideas drive out bad ideas, too. And so I saw myself as an intellectual and somebody who studied and who thought, and my sermons were always very well thought through. I was teaching people uh, what it meant to be a human, what I thought it meant to be a human being. And so I've been engaged. Unfortunately, now I can't be out in the streets. Uh, I've got kidney disease, and if I caught COVID, it'd probably be a death sentence. So I I have to cool my heels, but I think uh, what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, really profound. And we'll find out in the next election. We'll find out in November. Yeah. Do you see some of the, I guess, part of, for someone who's been involved at such a grassroots level in the 60s and 70s, do you what parts of this do you see that are similar in the through lines and maybe what's different? Well, they're the same issues, but there's just more. Well, we have cameras now. Uh. The first issue I was involved in as a young minister when I was in Birmingham, Michigan, I was there for two weeks and I was invited to a meeting at the district attorney's office in Oakland County, which is in Pontiac, Michigan. And we were there because a, a, a young black man was murdered by the police. He was shot in the back. And I don't remember how it happened, but I, I had a contact. I knew somebody who knew the coroner, and I found out that the coroner's report showed that the bullet entered the back and exited his front. And the police claimed that the kid had a gun and he, he, he reached for it and he was going to turn and shoot when they shot him. But they shot him in the back while he was running away. And uh, I told the prosecutor how he could, he had justified it as a justifiable homicide. And I asked him how he could do that. Did he know whether the bullet went in the front or back? And he didn't know. And I said, how can you make a judgment? Anyway, there were a lot of black people there. and. Uh, I met some of the leaders of the black community as a result of that and then worked with them in the future. Uh, one of the persons was a man, a lawyer named Milton Henry, who went with Malcolm X on his second trip to Africa. So I knew, I knew some significant leaders of the black power movement in Detroit at that time. And see, we didn't have cameras in those days. Now you have cameras and when the police shoot a guy in the back seven times, there are 14 films of it. Yeah, wait, so so you were testifying in court? No, it was at the prosecutor's office. We were trying, oh, we, want, we wanted those cops to be put in jail. And held accountable. Yep. And the other nice thing was in the chief of police in Pontiac, if you went into his office 
and stood in front of him, and he's sitting at his desk. If you look over his head, you could see that he was a member of the Mississippi Honorary Militia. And if you were black and went in that office and saw that, what would you think? Do you think you'd get a fair break from this guy? The Mississippi honorary, honorary member of the Mississippi militia. Right. Wow. And his father, I found out later, the chief's father was the head of the Klan in Oakland County. You had a lot of police departments where the, a lot of the cops were Klan members, especially all over the South. So as a, as a white person, you are uh, earning the trust of the black community in those times. Yeah, I had, I had a lot of connections, yeah. What's it like to, to remember those stories, those anecdotes? That I was in some ways very fortunate. I met some incredible people, uh, some people who were really had deep, deep commitments to civilization to humanism to be humane who sacrificed a lot to to try to make the world a better place and more fair place and equitable place yeah earlier you mentioned john lewis and of course he passed um uh this summer and you were good friends or you worked alongside his best friend, did you not? Well, I knew C.T. Vivian. C.T. was always with Martin Luther King, but he had married a woman from Pontiac, and he would come to Pontiac with his wife to visit her family. And I knew some black people in Pontiac who we were involved in trying to change things in Pontiac, and when he would come to town, we would get together and have all-nighters and talk about the movement and strategy and so on. So over a couple year period, I got to know CT pretty well. Stan, you mentioned that because of COVID and your kidney condition, you can't be out in the streets. Um, you That has been where you've done much of your work is as the activist, as the person willing to be on the ground doing the work, standing up, speaking out. Uh, what's it like to now be transitioning and working on your memoirs? And I'm imagining lots of writing or thinking or reflecting. How's that going? It's, um, it's mixed. I mean, there are a lot of things that I remember that were awful. And there were a lot of things that I remember that were great. Um, so you have to remember the good with the bad and, and losing friends. Losing friends who've, who were killed. Yeah. Who were killed. Yeah. There's some grieving in even remembering them and their stories. Oh, sure. And they, you know, and see, yeah, they're beaten and it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, I so admire some of the people, some of the people now, the parents of some of the young men who've been killed, murdered, and how they forgive. Forgive doesn't mean forgetting, but forgiveness is important in terms of keeping your own spirit clean. 
so you don't carry hatred and vitriol towards other people. And goodness knows some of them really seem to deserve it. In in the face of losing a son or a daughter to to not hold resentment or bitterness towards the towards the murderer to forgive. That's that's worthy of admiration. Takes a great spirit to do that. I was just gonna, I was just going to ask Dan, how do people do that? How how does one do that with their heart to open it up and allow love and forgiveness in as opposed to hardening it? That's not an easy thing. No, it's not. No, but it's part of healing. Can you say more a little bit about that? Otherwise, you you carry. Do you want to live at peace with yourself, or you want to seek revenge? Yeah, there's a choice there, isn't there? Yeah. What what kind of person do you want to be? Well, when you when you talk about that, it's almost as if you're describing that you don't do it necessarily for the other person; you do it for yourself to. Because you don't want to hold bitterness in your heart. Yeah, because they may or may not care that you forgive them. I see. Now, it, when there's reconciliation, though, there really is. You know, I know, I know people have worked with uh, people in prisons, individuals who've gone to a, a murderer and forgiven them. And then the person understands what it means to be forgiven also. If they want to clean their spirit, I, I don't know another way to say that. Yeah, you do it for yourself. And sometimes the other person will have some liberation as a result. If they have the capacity. How do you maintain hope? How do you maintain a commitment to the work given that onslaught of pain, hurt, hatred, well, one of the things you do is you become active politically and try to change laws or make it a crime to mistreat people. First you have to have you have to have some way to control behavior and if you can't get people to control themselves, then you have to use the law to control it. That it, you know, you can't go around lynching people. You can't do this. You can't like we used to do um, testing, especially in Michigan, when it was against the law to discriminate and you'd go out and you'd find an apartment and you'd go with somebody, uh, another white person, and talk about a, renting an apartment and a black couple would go and then they'd look at the same apartment and it, all of a sudden it wouldn't be available. And then the four of you go and meet with the uh, the owner and say, look at, you know, we're going to turn you in. You You start doing testing. You, you don't let people get away with that. You, you make sure that neighborhoods and areas don't have covenants that say only white people can live here. You have, to, you have to get rid of that stuff. You have to find ways to provide an equal playing field for everybody. I'm aware of housing discrimination being such a powerful, pre- uh, oppressive force. That's part of the, yeah, that's part of the... Uh, white uh, um, privilege. In the process, we talk about awareness as a first step, will, and then action, 
awareness, will, and action. And what you're talking about is the important third step of getting out and doing something, speaking up. Yeah. It's like we used to say to people, don't just stand there, do something. Yeah. John Lewis, it's get in trouble, the good guy. Get in good trouble. Good trouble, right. You have to sacrifice, you know, you, you have to know what the consequences can be. Say, say more about that, the consequence. You didn't know if you were going to be beat up or shot. You didn't know if you were going to come home. You were hoping you would, but basically, when we were demonstrating, we were putting our lives on the line. You had to know that. It takes a certain amount of courage, Stan. Well, it takes a, a commitment, commitment to values, yeah. There's a sense of values being almost lived values in action, those values through behavior, not just uh, thought, thinking, but actually expressed through the body. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was fortunate that I had people who were willing to support that kind of work. The members of my churches were willing to support our engagement. The Unitarian Universalist has always been, had that commitment to social justice, haven't they? Yeah, well, it goes, goes back to Emerson and his belief in... Ralph Waldo Emerson. The divine spark in every human being. It was, it was the most radical equalitarian philosophy ever conceived. The divine spark. There, there was a spark of the divine in every human being. And if that were the case, then every human being deserved to be treated well, be treated fairly, be treated justly, to be able to have an education, to be able to thrive and grow and prosper and develop. The Unitarians started the Red Cross. They started, they were an anti-slavery movement. They, they wanted equality. They really believed in it and that human beings were all equal in their being. And if that's true, you can't stand aside and watch people being uh, mistreated and misused and exploited. Quite a, um, I mean, a, a both a, a something that was in the Declaration of Independence, the founding of our country, and yet also not actually acted upon. So the tension of having it as a belief system, but not acting upon it, it, it quite a radical thought and idea that divine spark in every human being, not just some. And in some sense, that's what you discover when you do the process. I was just thinking the spiritual self as that divine spark. Absolutely, right. So it must have been for you, having experienced all of this work through the civil rights movement, through your divinity training at Harvard and Unitarian Universalist, and then to take the process, must have been powerful to have all those dots connected on such a deep level. Yeah, yeah. Because before I did the process, it was more an intellectual commitment rather than an emotional commitment. Because the emotions were short-circuited by the anger that was a result of my being treated unjustly as a child. 
What was that like to to let go of that anger and step into fully that divine spark of your spirit? Well, in some ways, you you lose an edge. <laughs> anger gives you an edge, you know. <laughs> so you you become more mellow, I guess. Not that you can't get uh, enthusiastic about things, but there's a different feel to it. There's that beautiful tension that you mention about having enough anger to, you know, there's a saying, if if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. So using anger to motivate and yet not being uh, obsessed with it or allowing it to take you down. Exactly. Because what happens if you're not careful, you become like the people you say you're against. Say, say more there. You become unjust. You start cheating. You start cutting corners. You start compromising. Stan, we have been chatting about your childhood, about your divinity school, about Ralph Waldo Emerson, about your uh, civil rights work your leader as a Unitarian Universalist, some of your advocacy work uh, with Common Cause, and um, and then your work with Hoffman, both as a faculty member, a teacher, but then as a researcher around neuropsychology. What such a vast, long career. What's it been like to, to reflect on it in, in this moment? How do you feel? Then I probably missed some opportunities to do more. <laughs> oh, no. All that you've done. Uh, well, the reason I'm doing the writing is it's for my grandchildren so that they know where we, you know, where they come from. The legacy? Yeah. My daughter-in-law is Chinese, so my grandchildren are mixed race. So, you know, we, uh, I'm concerned about them and about how they're treated, and especially uh, since the occupant of the White House keeps talking about the China virus, which is uh, causing a lot of racism towards uh, Chinese people. And um, I want my grandchildren to be safe, and I want them to be proud of who they are, and I want them to know that they have a history and what we've done and how, how we Made it, you know, I'm I'm second generation from Slovenia. My grandparents were from Slovenia. And I want them to have a better world. It's all it all seems to be coming to a head. This next election is gonna say a lot about where we are and where we're going. It does feel like there's a tension that's building. You know, it it's it strikes me that if we could get that we all have a dark side. We all have patterns. We all have parts of ourselves that aren't perfect. Then we can understand the value in, in understanding those and going towards those as a way of being free of those. Likewise, as a country, we have parts of our history that are, uh, are, are racist and sexist. And by, reconciling and and engaging in truth around them we can heal and move forward but we don't seem to want to own our history 
it's the awareness first, right? Yeah. You got to have the awareness of what was going on, what happened. And a lot of this stuff is buried. It's not in the history books. It's been covered up. I must admit, as a history major in college, understanding some of the more recent historical events that black people have been subjected to and murdered, the uh, Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. Of, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, we had 300 years of slavery before the Emancipation Proclamation. Then we had uh, Jim Crow, which was a new new form of slavery. The first time I voted was in 1960. I was in college in Tennessee, and I was I was working on the Kennedy campaign, and uh, I registered to vote. I had to pay a poll tax, and I had to pass a test, and I passed the test because I was white. And they also had that jar of marbles in the office where you had to, if you didn't know how many marbles were in the jar, you couldn't, you couldn't re get registered. And yet there's no way to know how many jars, are, how many marbles are in that jar. That's right. White people knew because they were told. So it wasn't until the 64 Voting Rights Act that then the South went from Dixiecrat to Republican. There was a massive shift. Uh, Stan, it's, I'm grateful for this conversation, grateful for this connection with you and, and your work. Thanks. And uh, for your efforts, not just in civil rights, but also with the Hoffman Institute. And uh, I see the value of, of uh, our work around brain neuropsychology and what we help people understand in terms of their their uh, neurons changing as a result of the process. Stan, I am grateful for this time, for this conversation. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for uh, helping me remember some of these things that have happened in the past that were very important. And uh, I've always valued the process and we still send people and... Still referring people to the process, huh? Oh, abs absolutely. My wife does, too, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Stan. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi. Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.